Again, if you're new here this morning or you're just visiting from out of town, I want to extend my welcome. We're really glad you're here. As a church, we've been going through a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is a great book to answer the question, who is Jesus? Uh, people have continued to be uh, enamored with Jesus for 2,000 years. Uh, whether it's a rejection of him or, or acceptance of him, people are still talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so we turn to Mark to discover who is this Jesus? What did he say? What did he do? Uh, who is he? And since the end of chapter 8, so we're a little more than halfway through Mark's gospel, uh, we've been in what's called the discipleship section of Mark. Uh, a disciple is someone who comes under Jesus and follows his ways and his teachings. So what does this entail? What does it require? What does it look like? What does it take? And over and over again in Mark's gospel, we've seen that discipleship requires more than the disciples have within themselves. And it requires more than we have within ourselves. And that might seem a little scary. Why would I sign up for something that requires more than I have in myself? But this passage today offers us hope for that tension. In our passage this morning, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52, Jesus, he asks the same question twice, which means we should listen up and pay attention. Uh, the first time, James and John, two of his closest disciples, uh, he, he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And then the second time, a homeless beggar named Bartimaeus, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And there are two very, very different responses given. The, the apostles, the disciples, John and James, uh, they say, lift us up, give us glory, you know, make us proud. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, he says, have mercy on me, grant me sight. So here's the big idea I want to explore with, as a community this morning. No matter what we bring to Jesus, no matter how he answers, he always offers mercy. So open up your Bible, or the Bible you were handed in, to page uh, 722. It'll also be on the screen, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the son, sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What we want or what we desire, it's not always what's best for us. Uh, my, my daughter Maggie, uh, she's only one, she wants and desires a lot of things. Uh, Julia coined the term for her the human garburator. Uh, she, she's adorable, but she's a human garburator. If you take uh, your eye off her for a moment, you just have to assume you need to inspect her mouth. And in that orifice, you might find rocks or uh, leaves, uh, coffee grinds, uh, orange peels, whatever, banana peel wants, you're going to find a lot of things in her mouth. You just have to assume, eyes off of Maggie, she's eating something. Now, it's obvious to Julia and I that what Maggie wants and desires isn't always for her best, but it's not so obvious to Maggie. Uh, and and we, we generally can do this as adults, and, and, but it gets trickier as we get older, doesn't it? Because you can name what you want out of life. You can name your wants and desires. Some of you know exactly what you hope to achieve. You've got, uh, you know, some of the really ambitious people in this room. You've got your six-week plan, and then there's the people with the one-week, you know, the one-year plan and the five-year plan and the 30-year plan. And let's just be honest. If you have a 30-year plan, you just need to relax 
the only thing you should be planning 30 years from now is to wear pants uh, or shorts if appropriate. Uh, but our working assumption is our wants and our desires, the things that stir us, they'll be good for us and they'll satisfy. Here's the thing. Nobody eats a Big Mac because it's nutritiously satisfying. But you want it. It sounds like a good idea at the time, all this will satisfy, but it never does. Reality is always a disappointment. Now, sometimes to others, on the outside looking in, they could say, what you're going after there, that, that's going to be a letdown, that's not going to satisfy. But other times, and, and this is particularly challenging when we're pursuing things as a, as a culture, or as a city, or as a church, where we all want the same thing, and we all assume the same thing will be good, and satisfy that there's no one from the outside looking in who can point out that it'll be good. And so these things that we're pursuing, we just are telling one another, this will be good, this will satisfy. And we can end up getting fooled. James and John, they know what they want, they know what they desire. And so they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How generous of them. They're essentially saying, Jesus, write us a blank check. You know, what makes them think that Jesus, the Son of God, should just blindly do whatever they want before they know? Why should Jesus give them a yes before he even knows the question? It's supposed to be the other way around. But surprisingly, Jesus, he complies. He replies, uh, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Let us sit in your glory. Flashback a year. Justin Trudeau is running as the leader of the Liberal Party, and if his party wins, he'll go on to become the Prime Minister. Uh, and as a hypothetical supporter of his party in this scenario, uh, you get to approach him as he's campaigning, and you say, Justin, uh, Mr. Trudeau, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. And because he has great hair, like Jesus, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And you say, I would like you to make me Governor General. This is an absurd request. Sure, he could put you forward as a potential candidate, but why should you? What, creden like, what credentials do you have? And even if he puts you forward, I'm revealing that I'm a monarchist at heart, it's the queen's appointment. He can't do it. It's absurd. James and John, they're convinced. Jesus, he's going to be the king of Israel on earth. And this is political maneuvering on their part. They're essentially saying, grant us Positions of prestige, grant us power and recognition. Let us reign with you. Put us in your second-in-command cabinet. Now, you've got to remember, James and John, they saw the transfiguration where Jesus brought them up the mountain and revealed his glory and divinity to them. So for the time being, they have the inside scoop. With their own eyes, they've seen heaven and earth intersecting in his person. But who's missing in this equation who was also at the transfiguration? Peter. This is collusion. Where's Peter? In a way, they're saying, look, Jesus, Peter, he saw your glory. He wanted to build tents. <sighs> Whatever. We want to sit in your glory. At your right and your left hand. Give us honor. And so their true motives are laid bare. St. Paul uh, writes a letter to one of the early churches in Philippi. And in Philippians, he says this in chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Do nothing... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. 
But here James and John are leaving out Peter, one of the inner three. They're leaving out all of the disciples, and they're concerned about their own status, their own ambition, their own glory, and not even necessarily the glory of Jesus, but what the glory of Jesus can do for them. They want to ride in on his coattails, and it's selfish ambition and conceit. Before we say, ah, oh, those silly disciples, I would never, never do that. I would never ask, let alone try to use Jesus for my own advantage. Let's try to relate to James and John. Because although from the outside looking in, their desire may appear misplaced for us, we just don't see that it's in ourselves because we all share the same desire and no one knows to point it out. Thankfully, Scripture does. One of my favorite columnists is uh, David Brooks of the New York Times. And uh, he talks about the big me culture. And he writes this, We live in a culture of the big me. The meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast a highlight reel of your life. Your parents and teachers were always telling you how wonderful you are. And what's the result? We're taught to do everything and leverage everything to advance ourselves. Like life circles around us, our resume, our abilities, our education, our desires, our dreams, our passions. And it's so deeply instilled in us that it works on a subconscious level that we can't even be sure that what we're doing isn't actually for our self-aggrandizement or our self-promotion. Martin Luther, uh, he loved this phrase, which I'm going to butcher, but incurvitus insi. Say it with me, class. Incurvitus insi. Incurvitus insi. There, there's your Latin quota for your life. Uh, it means uh, curved in on itself. Curved in on itself. Reflecting on this, Luther wrote, Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God toward itself and enjoys them, or even uses God in himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. So if Jesus asked us, if he asked you, if he asked me, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What would you ask for? Like James and John, would our nature be curved in on itself? Jesus, Jesus, I'd really like a Bentley. No, it's too explicitly selfish, so we try something else. Jesus, I'd really like a home. Please fix the housing crisis. It's a little more reasonable. Jesus, let me get a raise so I can give more money away. Always a great little catch-22. A bit better, but I think we can go deeper. We can go more sincere. Jesus, let me see past this fog of depression. Jesus, grant me hope. Jesus, heal me. You see, some of these requests are good. Uh, some of them are painful. But how would you know either way if your motives are pure and they align with Christ's desires? If we have a moment of honesty with ourselves, all of these requests are in us. Some are sincere. Others show uh, how we're curved in on ourselves. And many are just a mix between the two because the human soul is complicated. And because we share the same nature of James and John, we're curved in on ourselves. And we can come to Jesus with these demands or requests or sincere desires, but do we really know what we're asking for? 
When James and John ask for prestige and glory, Jesus says in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Do we? You see, we can approach Jesus with sincere needs. And yet sometimes the thing that we ask Jesus to remove or fix or heal is the thing he wants us to carry. St. Paul had a, a famous thorn that he asked God to remove three times. And he doesn't tell us what the thorn was. And if you read commentaries over the history of the Christian church about Paul's thorn, you're going to find thousands of hypotheticals. And I think Paul didn't say what it is because he wants us to read it in. Because more often than not, what the author says is more about their own life and experience than about Paul. These are the thorns that I experienced. Maybe Paul, that was what he experienced. But he had this thorn, this hurt that he carried with him that would not go away. And three times he asks the Lord, take it away from me. And then Jesus speaks to him personally. What does Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The answer is no, because this is an opportunity for grace. You see, sometimes the things we're asking God to remove in our lives, they're good prayers, they're sincere desires, and God is saying, this is your thorn. And that's hard to discern, and I can't cover all of that in this sermon. And so if this is you, if you're resonating with something in your life where you've prayed and prayed and it's not changing, I just want to invite the conversation. Please know Roger and I would love to meet you or a member of our care team and walk with you through that. But I also want you to know that if you're praying and you're not seeing things change, it doesn't mean it's because of the quality of your faith or because God doesn't care about you, but because God has placed an opportunity in your life to meet him there and experience grace there. So in the case of James and John, they have no idea what they're asking for. And so Jesus asks them another question. Verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Jesus is saying, I, I came to drink a cup. I came for a specific baptism. And what do these things mean? Nothing easy. The cup is an allusion to the wrath of God. And baptism here is an allusion to his impending death on the cross. Look at Psalm uh, 75 verse 8. The psalmist writes, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is a haunting and powerful image of God's wrath and justice overcoming those who have uh, rejected him and live contrary to his ways. This is an image of God overcoming all who reject him, uh, just his being, and God overcoming uh, those who oppress others and are in unjust and who harm others. This is God pouring out his wrath and justice on, on the wicked, on humanity curved in on itself. Now, the wrath of God is a difficult topic. I get that. But what's shocking about this passage is that Jesus is declaring that he came to drink the cup. He'll drink the cup of God's wrath instead of the wicked. He'll drain it down to the dregs. That's what he came to do through his baptism on the cross. So Jesus asks James and John, are you able to do this? And what do they say? Yep, we can do it. Shows they don't understand. This is like little boys following after 
soldiers in a parade waving plastic rifles. It's a childish understanding of war and death and the accompanying suffering, pain, and grief. They have no idea. No idea. James and John, they have no idea what they're talking about or what they're even asking for. And even though they don't know what they're asking for, here's what Jesus says in verse 39. You will drink of my cup and be baptized with my baptism. What he's saying is, I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to be baptized. You'll get the benefits. And you'll get to share in it. And they don't understand what this means yet. But they will one day see very clearly. Now, all of this happens. The rest of the disciples overhear it. And of course, they're just so happy with their friends who want a lord over them. And so a dispute breaks out. And, and look at verses 42 through 45. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach his uh, closest disciples. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 45 is revolutionary. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And now he tells them, here's what I am going to do for you. I came to serve you. I came to give my life for you. I came to be a ransom for you. In other words, if you understood who I am, it would change who you are. You wouldn't be seeking greatness. You would be seeking to be the least. You wouldn't be seeking for people to serve you, but you would be serving others because you would have experienced that I came to serve you and give my life for you and be a ransom for you. If you understood who I am, it would change who you are. But James and John demonstrate that they don't understand. Because they are seeking to lift themselves up. They're seeking to have other people serve them. They're seeking their own selfish ambitions. But then there's Bartimaeus. Oh, I love Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus gives us a totally different picture into discipleship. Uh, look at verses 46 through 52. They came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, he's been sitting in the dark his whole life. Sitting at that roadside was his daily routine. Begging was how he survived. Day to day, he depended upon people's generous or begrudging mercy. That was his life. He hears the sounds of daily life around him, children laughing, men yelling in the street, and it seems he's also heard rumors and thoughts about this Jesus of Nazareth. And now he hears that Jesus is passing him by on the road. And what does he do? Does despair overcome him? Does skepticism keep him seated? Does he make a half-hearted inquiry? No, no, and no. Bartimaeus cries out because genuine faith 
cries out. We saw this with the father and the son who was deaf uh, and mute and, and the demon couldn't get cast out. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He cries out in his helplessness. Because faith is not strong, it's vulnerable and it's needy. It's not a well-put-together request made from comfort. It's not a well-written letter to Jesus, but it's a heavy cry from a place of helplessness. And what does Bartimaeus say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What an entirely different approach than James and John. James and John approach Jesus saying, Jesus, do whatever we ask. Bartimaeus says, Jesus, have mercy on me. He recognizes that he has no power, no prestige that he can leverage. He approaches Jesus like James and John, making a demand, but instead he says, have mercy on me. But first he cries out to Jesus, the son of David. How can Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, see this about Jesus? Because to call him the son of David is to declare that Jesus is a descendant of King David who will sit on the eternal throne of God, that he's the Lord, that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah. And the fact that Bartimaeus, in his blindness and poverty, can see who Jesus is, is meant to astound us. God has given him sight. Bartimaeus sees who Jesus is. Only one other person has made this declaration in the gospel so far, and it was Peter. And how did that go? Within seconds, he's rebuked for misunderstanding what Jesus said. And here, Bartimaeus goes beyond Peter's understanding. He sees and he cries out, have mercy on me. Jesus owes him no favors. Bartimaeus knows he can make no demands, and yet all the same, he says, have mercy on me. In asking for mercy, he's saying, Jesus, be greatly concerned about me. You're high and above. I'm humble and low. See me. You're the king. I'm but a beggar. Jesus, have compassion on me. You're the living God forever. I'm a mere mortal. Have mercy on me. The people try to shut him up. He gets rebuked from all corners. Shh, Bartimaeus, be silent. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Go back to your begging, Bartimaeus. It's like the ancient equivalent of how people glare at the babies that cry during the service. That's a dad rebuke more than a pastor rebuke. But the resistance, you guys are great with our kids, the resistance that surrounds him comes from all sides, but it makes him cry out all the more. Jesus, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, he won't stop until he receives what he's asking for. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's moving. In his desperation and crying out, he's, he's reaching and begging in an entirely new way. This isn't some button-up culture. This isn't some self-restraint and self-sufficiency where it's the rule. He's helpless and he's pleading and he's beseeching and he's making a supplication. It might as well be a prayer. The, and the passage, it makes me ask. You know, if I were Bartimaeus, would I have kept asking? If people were trying to stop me and shut me up and put me in my place, would I press on? Would you? His perseverance, his desperation, it shows how deep his desire for Jesus must have run. Bartimaeus doesn't, Bartimaeus doesn't just want Jesus, he needs Jesus. 
He understands that he needs mercy. He doesn't just want mercy. He needs it. And so he cries out for mercy, and Jesus stops. Jesus stops, and he listens to Bartimaeus. He takes time for the lowly, for the desperate. He takes time for the embarrassing and the weak. Jesus stops, and he asks a question that we've already heard. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. We can feel the weight of this request. Jesus, let me recover my health. Jesus, let me recover my mental health. Jesus, let me recover what's been lost. Jesus, let me recover love. Jesus, let me recover friendship. Jesus, let me recover family. Jesus, let me recover my sight. It comes from the depths of who he is. And Jesus replies, go your way. Your faith has made you well. We don't want to miss this. Bartimaeus already sees. He already sees the one truth that matters. He sees who Jesus is. He sees the king of glory in his kingdom. And Jesus restores Bartimaeus' physical sight because Bartimaeus already sees. He's making an invisible reality visible to all and to Bartimaeus. If we jump back to the beginning of this discipleship section, which uh, began in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, do you remember how this whole section began? Several weeks ago, so no gold stars if you forgot. With the healing of blindness. Jesus heals a blind man, but what happened in that scenario? Two attempts. He puts his hand on him. What do you see? Everybody looks like trees. Whoops, puts his hands on him again, sees clearly. It was to signify the disciples' journey, that as followers of Jesus, they don't yet see clearly. They're being healed, but it's progressive. It takes time to understand who Jesus truly is. And as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, as Mark's gospel is about to focus on an entirely different issue, the cross, Mark ends the discipleship with, section with this capstone, with another story of a healing of blindness. But what happens? Bartimaeus is healed immediately. In other words, he's the exemplary disciple. This blind beggar is the capstone of the discipleship section. He is an example to all of us of how to be true disciples, not with strength or with uh, knowledge, but with complete humility and self-abandon, saying, I don't have it all together. I am needy. Jesus, have mercy on me. And guess what? Bartimaeus sees. Do we want to be like that? Do we want to be like Bartimaeus? That's what Mark's asking us. Or do we want to be like John and James? But we also have to ask, is that it? Did Bartimaeus get what he wants? And then Jesus says, go on your way. Can he just go be on his way? Was Jesus really just a means to an end? He came to Jesus, he got what he wanted, and then he goes and just lives his life. But look closely. Jesus says, go your way. And in verse 52, immediately Bartimaeus recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Bartimaeus doesn't go home. He joins Jesus 
on the way because Jesus' way is his way. Jesus was the end. Jesus was the destination. Jesus was the prize. Bartimaeus had arrived. But why? Because Bartimaeus received everything he needs. Mercy. And on top of it, sight. And as a result, he follows Jesus on the way. And remember, whenever you see this phrase in Mark, on the way, it always refers to what Jesus came to do, to be crucified and to redeem the world. Bartimaeus joins in that movement that's heading towards that moment. He joins Jesus on the way. And this is the first time it's said of anyone in Mark's gospel that someone joins Jesus on the way. It's a miracle. But what was the key? Not the healing, the mercy. So once again, if Jesus asked us, what do you want me to do for you? What would we say? What would you say? What will I say? Will we get it right, like Bartimaeus? Will we ask for mercy? Or will we get it wrong, like James and John? Will we seek our own glory? That's probably what's going through our hearts, isn't it? Will we get this right or wrong? Will we ask for the right things or the wrong things from Jesus. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you ask for the right things or if you ask for the wrong things from Jesus. It doesn't matter if you ask the right question or if you ask Jesus for something pure or selfless or if you mistakenly ask for something that just is for your own benefit. It doesn't matter because what matters is that you come to Jesus. And you can ask and ask and ask again and again. And it doesn't matter if you ask in the right or in the wrong way. And I know this is shocking because deep down, we want to get it right. We want to be people who get it right. So how can we trust this is true? Verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve us, give his life for us, ransom us. Which means he doesn't stand above us when we're flawed. He comes down and he serves us. He doesn't stand above us when our desires are curved in on themselves. He comes and, and he works with us there. He doesn't stay removed from us when we're selfish. He gives his life in service to us. He doesn't withhold himself when we're taken captive either by our own desires or by our nature or by brokenness in the world, but he offers himself as a ransom to free us and liberate us and redeem us. Because Jesus takes great concern for us. He sees us and he shows us compassion. And his mercy is enough. Because the way forward, the way of discipleship, isn't through our own strength or our own glory or even our own sight. It's through mercy. And if you ask for mercy from Jesus, the answer is always yes. And so you can cry out for mercy and Jesus will stop for you. And no matter what he does for you, it will be enough. And that's the hopeful news that although we don't have what it takes to be disciples, Jesus has mercy on us and brings us with him along the way. This prayer of Bartimaeus has survived in Scripture for thousands of years and has been rearticulated in the church uh, very early on, uh, what is now known as the sinner's prayer. And I, I think this is why it's lasted so long 
because it's true and it's fundamental. And the prayer is this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me as sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can be guaranteed Jesus will answer that prayer. No matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, no matter what else you're asking for, he will give you mercy. 